Thought lost to the ravages of the machine curse. The Critical Twits bring you this lost episode. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Critical Twits Gaming Podcast, where we return to the world of tabletop role-playing games to cover world building. Welcome back to the Critical Twits Gaming Podcast. I'm Brian Ennis. And I'm Jimmy Myland. And today we're going to be talking about tabletop role-playing games and world building. But before we do that, how have you been, Jamie? I've been okay, yeah. Um, been a while since I've been on the uh, podcast. Have you been hiding from us? I have. Life gets in the way sometimes, but... Uh... It does, it does. In fact, we've all had a bit of a, a hiatus, uh, but we're back. Yes, absolutely. And we're uh, we're ready to go. Yep, I'm looking forward to it. Right, let's return to uh, world building then, um, okay. and the world of tabletop role-playing games. This is part of our RPG Basics series, uh, where we've already talked uh, about how to run a game, uh, and how to create compelling player characters for your games. Uh, and now we're going to talk a little bit, I suppose this is really, it's talking about the setting of your game, isn't it? Hmm. It is, and sort of how you go about um, creating the world that your characters are going to explore. Yes, so uh, we're going to go through what world building is, why we think it's important, and then probably the meat of the episode will be uh, different ways to do it, and um, especially ways for the players to be involved in the world building alongside the dungeon master, or games master, or storyteller, or whoever it is in your uh, in your particular game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the things that, that quite often seems to happen is that there's less collaboration than maybe there could be, and it's the the person running the game sort of presents the game and then the players respond to it. But actually, some of the most fulfilling role-play experiences I've had is where all of the players have been involved in the, uh, the world-building. We'll talk about uh, some of the different approaches you can take. Um, we've been especially inspired uh, for this episode by... The game The Sprawl, which is kind of a cyberpunk. Uh, it's not kind of a cyberpunk. It is a cyberpunk game uh, it, that we've been playing recently that actively encourages players to get involved in the world building. Yeah, I was involved in the player side of that and actually really enjoyed the uh, the experience of coming up with the setting along with the, uh, the the actual games master. Yeah. So, so I suppose we'd start with what is world building then? Uh, at least how it relates to tabletop role-playing games i suppose it comes from mostly from uh the world of fiction doesn't it the term word world building it does i mean obviously the early role-playing games were based in in fantasy and um fantasy has had a long tradition of world building yeah so it's the, this process of creating a believable interesting living world for your role-play characters to explore and exist within yeah i mean i think a uh, Personally, you know, outside of the role-playing thing, I've been interested in world-building from quite a young age. I mean, reading things like Tolkien and and similar authors where, you know, Pratchett and things like that, where they've got really kind of deep uh, worlds that they've built up over a series of books. And it really inspires you to go out and start thinking about, you know, if you had your own world, what would it contain? Yeah, I was the kind of kid that would sit and I'd, I'd doodle maps and I'd imagine mm-hmm. what kind of people would live in this city or in that area or um what it would be like to live on that particular island miles away from everyone or whatever it might be yeah um, 
so I used to yeah I think we do that we do that quite a lot maybe when we're when we're younger sort of more naturally but as we age our imaginations I think they become less sort of of tapped um, or is less accessible to us so it might not be the easiest thing to approach okay I'm going to be running a role play game how do I do this how do I try and bring a world to life yeah absolutely so what sort of techniques do you use when you start to to think about that Oh, uh, lots oh. and lots and lots of different things. I think we'll get into the techniques a little bit in a, in a minute, actually. Um, okay. I'm just thinking um, it's not just world building on a, on a large scale, because you mentioned sort of Tolkien and Pratchett, where they've built a complete world from scratch. Uh, and world building does have this, this link to fantasy. Uh, but even uh, if we take something modern day, it still has world building within it, but you're building mm. the miniature world that those characters exist within rather than necessarily having to, to focus on the big things. Uh, you'll zoom in on the little things. Yeah, I think that can go across the board as well because, you know, you say you've got modern day things where if it's set in the real world, you don't have to build the world, it already exists, but you're building something with inside that, like a story within the existing world. But also yeah. if it's within a pre-existing setting... Um, such as um, Forgotten Realms, for example, uh, you're still carving out your own little bit of it. Yeah, so you might be playing uh, the Forgotten Realms and you might be playing with in Waterdeep, Mm. which has a rich tradition that you can draw on and lots and lots of stories set there and lots of world books that detail what's going on. But the moment that you as a DM uh, make up a character that isn't in any of those books. You are world building. You are creating something within that world to try to interest, intrigue, or to entice your players to, uh, to get involved. Mm-hmm. So why is, why is good world building important within a, a role-playing game, Jamie? Um, obviously, it's going to be setting the scene for the players. So if you've got a good grasp of the world that the players are entering, you're going to be able to think much more dynamically and on your feet. Um, <clears throat> if the player does something unexpected, you can react to it in a much more natural way if you understand the world that the players are in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as a as a player, um, for me, one of the, the good things about a, a tabletop RPG is the same as reading good fiction. It's that escapism into being someone else or seeing the world in a different way or existing in a different place or different time. Mm-hmm. So the more that the that can be done to make that secondary world or that secondary uh, situation seem realistic and interesting to the players, uh, the more it makes the game appealing, the more that the players will want to spend time there. And hopefully the DM will want to spend time there as well. Absolutely. So have you done much world building before we move into some tips on uh, what to actually do? I've not gone down the rabbit hole quite as deep as some people. Um, but at yeah. the same time, you know, like I say, when I was younger, I would come up with, like you, like you in a way, sketching out maps and coming up with ideas for place names and what would happen in this world. And then when I got into uh, D&D uh, and actually running a game of that, I really got into the idea of like, you know, let's build a town and the characters within that town and what sort of things might be happening in that world. So I'd have a really good grasp of uh, what the players may encounter. Now, I think I've spoken about this on the podcast before and the fact that during that 
experience, my players kind of decided they didn't really want to explore that town and immediately went off in the opposite direction. Um, which is <laughs> another thing. That's typical RPG, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I think that's definitely something I would say is, you know, world building is very uh, rewarding, but at the same time, don't get too attached to it. <laughs> it's like there's a good chance that a lot of it is some stuff that your players will never see. Um, yes. it's things that you may come up with and ideas that you know may be put to one side and never come back to but the fact that they were there in the first place really helps like I say give life and character to to that world yeah definitely um, I mean I've I actually I'm sort of thinking back to my first sort of forays as being a sort of a, a dungeon master or um, I'm running games um, mostly D&D when I started so a bit of Dungeons and Dragons um, mm. third edition uh, when I started playing, um, playing sort of properly uh, with a regular group and, and running games for them, and one of the things I I used to to do is I I most of my games were set within worlds that already existed. These mm-hmm. ones where you can go and buy a sort of campaign book or a world book or or various things, and they're a really great way of um, giving you sort of background and things to fall on, and you don't need to worry about what's happening three countries over because you can look it up or just remember what they're called and it mm. gives that kind of that the word verisimilitude which sounds really mm. um really wanky and slightly poncy but just <laughs> means the feeling of truthfulness yes. it feels like there's more to the world than just what you are doing that you're not you know it's not like the world only exists around your players other things happen as well yeah, I would say unless you've got a huge amount of spare time on your hands, you know, setting your your campaign or your world in an existing setting is is definitely not the worst route to go down. Yeah, so it's a great way to get started. But what I would do within that would then be to add my own towns, my own areas, my own NPCs and my own ideas within that framework. So building on what's already there hmm. um, and then sort of giving it my own individual twist and allowing my creativity to create something I thought would be interesting yeah, that absolutely. I wanted to explore. Absolutely. Um, have you got any examples of that? Um, yeah, actually, one of the um, oh, excuse me, uh, one of the very first campaigns that I that I ran was set in a village called Brendergast. Hmm. Um, okay, tell I, me more I about Brendergast. Brendergast is uh, existed within the Forgotten Realms. It was uh, quite far north east of Waterdeep and to the east of uh, the pirate city whose name escapes me um, at this moment and um, it was it was situated within a heavily wooded area uh, there was a, a town to the south uh, that was detailed um, in the um, in the background book it was mostly just a paragraph that said it has this many people in um, these sites you know those kind of very short sharp to the point uh, descriptions that you quite often uh, you quite often get, mm. um, and I just wanted a sort of something that was fairly small, fairly self-contained. So Brendergast had a load of problems, had load, um, and it needed heroes to help them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the players went off from there, so it gave them a, a sort of base of operations. Um, and as they they levelled up, their adventures became more became wider became more involved with uh, the forgotten realms itself um they ended up going to that particular pirate city at one point um they i 
tried to get them into the Lair of the Spider Queen expansion, mm-hmm. but they didn't like it and they left. Um, <laughs> Your players tend to do that. never get back. Um, mm-hmm. it, just, um, it was done very differently to the way I was running the campaign and they felt jarred by it. So we kind of walked it back a little bit and that was fine. Um, and... Yeah, sort of over over time, this this is a campaign that went from first level to about 17th level over several years. Uh, and over time, Brendigas became almost its own little miniature world within the Forgotten Realms. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a, another bit that I added. I wanted a, um, a series of, of islands um, that I added in that, again, they don't exist in the Forgotten Realms map, but I placed them just off the edge of where the map gets to. Mm. forgotten realms um i was like it's over here um and they went there and they they undertook some adventures there but i was always able to bring in some of the ideas and background from the forgotten realms things like the the system of deities that they have in the forgotten realms is already there and already built for me i didn't need to mess around with building it at that level uh big institutions things like the harpers already existed of course, for instance yeah. um who are a um a group that strives to keep the balance between uh, good and evil hmm. um and law and chaos they are all about sort of balancing and so they became involved with them when they started to tip the the place they're in too much towards the side of good hmm. So, yeah, it was uh, it was great fun, and it was we were able to to bring in some of the ideas of the Forgotten Realms while having an area to be creative within. Uh, one of my favourite things uh, within that particular campaign was uh, this is a good example of the world building that the characters can do um, was that the characters created their own organisation within the game. Mm, okay. So having having role play together, having adventured together as characters uh, for several levels, um, you know, sort of a year of in-game time, they returned back to Brendergast by sea. Um, they were like, what are we going to do? And the two of the characters decided that they should formalise their alliance uh, by establishing um, a group that became known as the Knights of the North, because we're in the north of the Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. Um, although they disagreed on fundamental issues, one of them being a chaotic good character, one of them being a lawful good character. Uh, one of them wanted a con- codified set of rules and like almost making the thing like a, a knightly order. And the other character wanted the Knights of the North to be a, um, a loosely affiliated band of individuals who act together for the common good. <laughs> Which I think uh, I think he wanted on a plaque um, at their hall, and they built they built a hall, and they attracted other NPCs. Uh, leadership feats were taken to bring other characters in, and they started to sort of create their own organisation within the uh, within the uh, game, which is uh, was great for me because as a DM, they're kind of building the world themselves. Absolutely. <clears throat> what about you, Jamie? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, um, I'm just going back. I use Roll Twenty a lot for my um, campaigns. Um, I mean, you probably you probably know that I I'm really into Numenera. That's kind of my setting of choice. Yeah. Um, for roleplay these days, and uh, when I first started playing Numenera, I sort of dived directly into you know the standard setting, the book, and everything like that, which is mostly based in the area called the Steadfast. And the steadfast is kind of the your sort of general. Um, if you imagine Game of Thrones in the future, the far far future, 
Um, yeah. It's kind of that kind of multiple kingdoms are all sort of, you know, a, a very kind of loose um, agreement not to kill each other. Uh, when uh, at least on the brink of at any point, you know, collapsing. But there's just this war against the creatures in the north that's just holding it together yeah well Luminera is more kind of a science fantasy isn't it it is science fantasy yeah it's, it's yeah. um uh, so, it's so it's, far in the future that things are kind of crumbling and they've kind of got medieval technology plus relics of the past exactly yeah it's like the there's been a big reset button pressed on on humanity and everybody started again from scratch and they're just about up to medieval level of technology but yeah, they've got all this leftover technology that people are starting to try to pick up and find and figure out how to use. And to have them, it appears like the magic. Dying Earth. Oh, sorry. sorry. I, ha- I have. Yeah, the Dying Earth series was a big influence on on Monty Cookman writing this um, the the uh, scenario. And yes, yeah, you can really tell it comes through. Um, yeah. So, what did you do within that to to help build that world? Then, well. Or did you find it was enough just to rely on the books? Initially, yes. Initially, it was enough to rely on the books for my first, like, couple of adventures. Um, I based it in an area called Thaymore, um, and there's some really nice backstory given there about what's going on with the king there behind the scenes. and Well, not the king exactly, but the the leader of that area. And, Mm. um, yeah, it it was enough to get you going. But one of the nice things they do in... um, in Numenera is the map itself contains all of these sort of landmark locations that are named locations that you can visit yeah. and you can find in the books or the expansion books um, all the details about the, the city and towns of places like Jirek and Shalamas and um, Yenth and all these different places but there's also these little dots and um, other symbols like castles and um, relics dotted around the map that are kind of greyed out sort of semi-transparent and they're basically what Monty Cook Games said was they put those there to allow you to put your own mark on the map. So you know that there's something there of interest, but they said that they'll never touch it in their world building. Yeah. So it's a chance for you to go and kind of explore that area yourself, um, which I think is quite nice. And we did. We, um, we originally set uh, a hometown for the, the, the players uh, in the uh, the land of Thamor, um, which actually I got them to name, and uh, they named it as uh, Ong, O-N-G. Um, okay. Um, and then there was another little dot on the map um, not far from there, so uh, they named that Corvus. So I got the players yeah. to help with the naming of these locations, and then I sort Excellent. of built up the um, actual, you know, what went on there as, as the campaign progressed. Yeah, I think that's great. We talked before about getting characters uh sorry players when they build their characters to give those characters backgrounds and and similar things like that Mm. and you can actually take a lot of um a lot of inspiration from your world building by the hints that the players give you Mm -hmm. by what they choose in their backgrounds and and what they're into there but i think getting them to to actively sort of name different locations or groups or or even npcs gives them that feeling of investment in the world it does, yeah, and and actually, let's say combining the pre-existing lore and and um, adventures that have been written for a system with your own little ideas initially when you're first starting out can really help help trigger your imagination because you're not starting from scratch, so you have an idea of the the rules and the laws of that kind of area. Yeah. Um, the nice and again for me, the nice thing with Numenera is that you have 
the the steadfast is where we started. Then you have the beyond, and the beyond is where the weird stuff really kicks in. Um, yeah. But essentially, all of these individual little, um, I think aldeas, these little sort of towns and villages, are usually yeah. based around different technology you would find in that area. Okay. So there's there's a real kind of variety and difference from one area to the next. And then there's the area that's not on the map, which is called Beyond the Beyond. <laughs> and, <laughs> quite, um, quite like that. I, I love that. And the fact is, is that there is no definition of what's there beyond what's been defined in, in the video game that came out recently. Um, yeah. But that which is also set in a, like a whole new area beyond the beyond. But outside of that, the, the world is your, you know, your oyster. And then you can start world building your own whole region within that. Yeah, and I think because um, mostly this this series is is aimed towards newer role players, yes, uh, or newer DMs. But um, and for them, you know, building something within a framework and, and starting to get creative with it, with that safety of those fallbacks and not having to create everything for yourself um, is a really good way to get into sort of world building. Mm. Starting with something small, even if it's just building a town and thinking, okay, so how does this town work? Who's in charge? Uh, why are they in charge? Who doesn't mm. like the fact that they're in charge? What adventure hooks could they there be for my players? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and how how does it fit system? into the wider world? Yeah. Um, so that's a, a really good way of, of getting going. Um, and, and it's I, still some, it's something I still do to this day, uh, even 15 years into into running games. Hmm. So let's uh, let's say that uh, people listening they're they're interested. They've got they've got a few ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're at least they're inspired to have a go at world building, maybe for their next role playing campaign, uh, or maybe to add something new onto the um, an existing campaign that they've got that's maybe taking place within one of these predetermined worlds. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about then how to sort of break into to world building because mm-hmm. it can seem quite an intimidating topic, can't it? It's like right, you need to build a world. Go. <laughs> yeah. What would be your first step? My first step. I mean, again, I think this really is. This is a very personal thing. You know, it comes down to to every single um, GM or player or just somebody who's interested in world building outside yeah. of role playing. But I mean, for me, I initially got into world building through language and okay. the idea of being able to create a new language and then start to develop on what kind of cultures would speak that language and how that would build up from there. But that was, okay. like I say, when I was much younger and before I got, really got into role playing. Um, I know a lot of um, Tolkien because he was a linguist, wasn't he? He was, yeah. So, I mean, probably one of the most famous um, secondary worlds ever uh, being uh, being Middle Earth, um, you know, actually started from that linguistic base, didn't it? So I don't it, think that's quite did. necessarily an unusual way to go about about doing it. I think it would be, I'd find it quite, I personally would find that quite a tricky approach to take for something role play but I think because that's the we'd thing. Be speaking English in the game. Yeah, and I think I think that's the thing. Like I say, if you're coming to it from before you get into role playing, there's yeah. all sorts of different routes in. Um, I think again, then the second the second route in would be through the map making and map map building. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are the two things that really got me interested as a you know as a young whippersnapper starting to kind of explore the idea of. Um, you know, of creating a place of my own because 
Uh, I've also been into the idea of writing a novel and you know, yeah. I, I started writing um, a couple of books in the past and um, starting to world build for those as well as, you know, it, it's a whole rabbit hole you can dive down. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, as a, as a writer myself with um, with a few short stories out there and a couple of novels in progress, so I, mm. I completely um, empathise uh, with that. Um, and actually, I don't think I'd have gotten into writing uh, as heavily as I have without having had that RPG base to test my ideas, yeah. to have a go at something and, and see, get some immediate feedback. Hmm. Why does this happen? You said that these people were like this, but they're acting in this way. Why, why are they doing that? And as a DM, you're there going, right, well, I can either backtrack and go, mm-hmm. okay, that was wrong. Or I can say, ah, that's an interesting contradiction because, and add some extra depth to what's going on and try oh, to explain okay. it that way. Uh, so I find, you know, I, I find that the, the writer in me loves this part of being a DM. Mm. Um, so yeah, cartography. Um, yeah, it's quite common to get a map with mm-hmm. a, if you're reading a fantasy novel. Uh, and you definitely get a map if you any kind of role play uh, system with its own world, you'll get a map. Um, do you use anything to help you build maps? Because I I tend to scribble really badly. Draw I can't draw to save my life. <laughs> um, I, I would die in whatever kind of bizarre challenge would require me to draw my way out of mortal danger. You say um, that, <laughs> um, but we have actually had to do that exact very thing um, because there's actually a, a game we played not too long yes. ago um, yeah. called The Quiet Year which is actually I love a, that game it was a great game isn't it and it's a, it's a cartography based game where you know essentially you're drawing random events from a deck of cards and then building a world and drawing it on a blank sheet of paper as you go along so yes yeah, yeah. Um, I really uh, I really like that I think we'd, we probably could do a, a full podcast on that at some point I think we should definitely should I think it'd be nice um, to actually do a, a, a recorded actual video let's play kind of thing of, of that as well yes um, yeah it's hard for us to do as a podcast because it's so visual yes we'd need to record it as a, as a video for the YouTube channel instead uh, but I did really enjoy that now the um, nice thing with that that's actually the- every single time I've played that game um, because the end of the game is quite ambiguous. Um, basically, you have one year, one quiet year, to build a community and to kind of rebuild after some uh, war or something has happened in the past or some disaster. So, you know, you're working together um, as, as a small group to draw the map and draw where the people would live and what the terrain's like and what the culture's like there and then what events happen during that year. And there's disasters and good things that can happen and be drawn from the cards um so working together you can build this quite intricate backstory to a community and every single time it finishes it finishes with this ambiguous okay winter is coming basically the frost giants are coming and something something's gonna happen but we don't know what and every time we finish it i'm like okay i want to start a role-playing game in this world now because i want to know what happens next and we have this rich backstory um, yeah, absolutely brilliant idea. I wanted to do that with the thing with the one that we did. There mm. was there were a couple weird little things that people were trying to seed as plot points that didn't quite get picked up again. Yeah, and they could totally like, be real and I plot was like, points. Yeah, I was like, but where did the fishing fleet go? They yeah. never came back. Yeah, we need to find the fishing fleet. What, what was um, that thing glinting in the mountain? Yeah, there was a, there was a whole load of glinting mountain going on, and we didn't know what was happening. And there were some faceless people, and we never worked out quite why they were faceless. Yeah, 
Um, we ended up with two contradictory ideas. <laughs> we did. And we didn't know which one was correct and which one wasn't. And it would have been really cool to actually dive in and explore. So that could be a really good way, actually, of yeah. getting going. It will build your map for you. Mm. And it will give the players a kind of a shared background, a shared, even if it's just this one year, um, it will give them a shared kind of history before you then launch into some kind of uh, some kind of game. Absolutely. Uh, whether that be, it probably suit itself quite nicely to any kind of fantastical um, role playing system, but it, you could it, twist it. it. It definitely would. I mean, I've I've played that game with different settings before and, and tried doing the sort of the modern day. You know, you're you're shipwrecked on an island off the coast of Canada. Um, yeah. And I've tried doing the more fantastical ones, and I've done the moon base one before as well, which was quite good fun. Oh, uh, cool. Essentially, you're in a dome on the moon. And, you know, you go from there. But, um, yeah, there's all sorts of different ways you could take that. And, if again, if you, if you want to get into world building but you haven't got an idea for a world, that could be a really good way of starting to generate some ideas. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's another game um, out there which we haven't played yet. I've had a, a read through and I, I want to, to get it to the table, um, which is a game called Microscope. Hmm. I heard of this. Which does a similar thing. Um, I'm just on the website now, actually, and it mm-hmm. says uh, it was a finalist for RPG Game of the Year at the Golden Geek Awards 2011 and 2012. Mm. Uh, so well done them for getting in there twice. Um, and most innovative new product at the Gaming Genius Awards 2011. Mm, cool. um, and it's all about working together um, with no GM, no prep. Uh, as it says, you build a world together. Hmm. Hundreds or thousands of years long in an afternoon, as it says. And it's got really nice um, structure for doing that. Uh, that I can't talk about in too much detail because we haven't done it yet. Okay. Um, but we will. I think we definitely will. Um, that so that's good. another thing I recommend people check out. Um, there's some very good um, testimonies from some very good... Uh, gamers and game designers and creators that have used um, microscope uh, okay. in order to help them build their world. And does that does that include cartography at all? I don't know if it includes cartography, but you mm. could. I uh, think you can draw along as you go. Mm. Okay. Um, so, um, well, on the topic of cartography, though, another another good um, resource that I've found in the past is um, there's a. An app that's been an Apple website that's been in beta now for quite a while, uh, called Incarnate, but spelt like ink, I N K. Yeah. Um, and basically, it's just a nice little visual tool to help you draw maps if you're not very good at drawing. Yeah. Now, I've used Photoshop in the past and uh, mocked up some things that have combined bits of Google Earth images and so on to to create realistic looking worlds. But the nice thing with Incarnate is that it actually generates a kind of traditional hand-drawn type of map just by you painting on the screen. Um, And there's all sorts of additional flourishes you can add to it. So it automatically generates the coastline for you. And then as you get going, you can add in mountain or hill ranges with really nicely drawn and kind of almost like randomly placed elements that just help you kind of make it look like it's a very professional map. You showed me this last week when we were planning this podcast and it looked amazing. <laughs> I was really, really excited and slightly jealous of all the people because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm old. I come from the, the era of graph paper. Yep. 
and badly drawn uh, maps therein. Um, and this looked, the stuff looked, you know, borderline professional quality mm. with very, very little effort at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm actually just logging in now to uh, to have a good look at the tools again. So, <clears throat> yeah, so once you're into the, uh, the app itself, um, you've got essentially a sculpt mode, which allows you to kind of plot out the land that you're going to be uh, basing your world around. And you can change the size of the, the drawing tools to add some, you know, large kind of land detail and then go in and add some real fine detail on the on the coast of the land or even if inland if you can have like a um an inland river or lake or something like that um but then as you go you can start to brush in other things so you can add in castles or watchtowers and you can scale these things to all different sizes so you could you could actually base your map on a very very small scale island or like a really large scale world tolkien style as well yeah, um, you can add trees and other types of um, flora and fauna to the world, dead trees and hills and all sorts of things. And of course, you can add text to the map as well and name things. And it's just a really yeah. nice, very quick and easy tool to use, but it gives yeah. quite professional results. Yeah, I think map building is, is quite a good, especially if you're visual and you've got a couple ideas already. Um mm building some geography uh, one of the things that you quite often see is rather than sort of people building out their own world completely is people might take an existing map and mirror it or flip it upside down mm. um, or do a sort of negative of an existing map to give themselves you know sort of the the ge- basic geography of the uh, of the place um, i think starting with the map is an example of starting big starting yes. with something big to build the world and then zooming in so you start you put in a range of mountains and then you put in a couple cities and you go okay so what's this one going to be called and what's it like and you kind of you're zooming in Mm. Um, another way to do that is um, because i quite like um i quite like social science fiction i like um unusual societies and um odd groups within my uh, within my sort of like my fantasy or, or my science fiction where mm-hmm. um, you might explore some some strange ideas so so for instance uh, I quite like the the work of J.G. Ballard one of my f- most favorite authors of all mm-hmm. time um, who started off as a science fiction writer and then said that modern day caught up with his ideas and became much weirder. So he now writes about the modern, or he was writing about the modern day uh, until he, uh, until he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things he would do is he would take a, a location and then he would tweak the society within it. So, for instance, in his novel High Rise, he has... Uh, one of these huge, great big tower blocks uh, full of flats, apartments, penthouses, um, and also a shopping floor and a swimming pool. And, you know, this almost like these self-contained um, city blocks that mm. are one enormous building. Um, and he went, right, what if people didn't want to leave? How would society be um, if this little tweak was there in this case? Nobody wants to leave. Everyone's quite happy. How Mm. would things go? How would things change? How would people act? What power structures would form? 
Mm -hmm. um, and I like looking at, at world building from a similar kind of perspective. So I like to think of um, what if the world was like this or what if people thought this or what if this crazy person on the internet, what if there was an entire society that all thought the same way as them? Um, how would that society work? What would it be like? And again, that's starting big, mm. but it's focusing more on the sort of the structure and the power um, within. Uh, but it gives feels for me, it gives me lots of ideas for adventures and for characters and for hooks to draw the players in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I think for me, that's always been the second thing to come to after the after the landscape and the world. Yeah. Up. But I can totally see that approach being a lot more kind of rewarding in a way because your the, the land itself is inconsequential um, when it comes to the player's interaction with it for the most part. Um, it can be. It can be really interesting, actually. If you're doing a traditional kind of... A fantasy narrative, most fantasy narratives, at least traditionally, are quest narratives. Mm. You think of the hobbits in The Lord of the Rings. Yep. Uh, you think of the quest for the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. um, you think of, of all those... A lot of those kind of um, traditional fantasy stories are where people will quest. Yes. So they will travel the world. Yep. So actually starting with uh, with a map, if you're thinking of having uh, quite a cosmopolitan story or a wide ranging story where players are going to travel around the world um, and come into contact with different cultures or different uh, places, actually starting with the map can be a good idea because you can start to throw up barriers or difficulties or interesting mm -hmm. um, terrain for them to traverse. Uh, especially this works again quite well with fantasy in the sense that with a fantasy story it's quite hard if you end up lost somewhere horrible it's very hard to get out mm -hmm. uh, and it may be you know if you need to get to the other side of the world to get the magic item the talisman to save the queen's life or the magic sword to slay the dragon you can't just jump on a shuttle and fly there no you, know, you need to know what are the obstacles you're going to face along the way yeah and you can have these sort of these epic quests uh, I suppose for science fiction, if you're exploring different planets, yes, uh, or different <clears throat> areas within a large planet, that could be quite interesting to do, and could maybe come from that approach um, as well. But yeah. yeah, these are again. That's another example of um, a top-down view. So you might start. You might have a really interesting idea for a system of gods, for instance, mm -hmm. in a in a fantasy world where the gods do have magic. They do exist. And they're active within the world. So again, you'd start quite big and think, okay, so how how would these beliefs have shaped people? How would they have shaped society? How would they have encouraged people? So you might, uh, you know, if you've got lots of gods, if you say you're taking the old ones that live under the sea and going, oh, wouldn't that be cool if they were real gods and people worship them? You'd probably end up with a lot of settlements clustered around the coast. Mm-hmm. Because they want to be close to their gods. They'd need to be near where they could worship people. Uh, worship the gods, sorry. So that can start to shape your geography as well. So there's kind of a nice interplay between the two quite often. Absolutely. That, that's map mapping. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Have you ever have you ever built um, any odd societies, Jamie? Any anything slightly strange? Um, I think again with the Numenera examples, it, it's quite easy to build the odd societies because every yeah. single sort of aldea that the players make visit um, has the potential to be very odd. Um, so you might have a a region out in the beyond that's based around maybe just like a levitation um, technology. So that in itself changes in, uh, everything about the way that the the people in that area interact with their world. So. They don't have the need, for example, for um, for cattle to pull their, you know, um, their trailers and things like that. They can they can carry their goods via the technology. They can um, they have a form of transport to get around, and that initially changes the way that they interact with the yeah, world. Because to me, if they've got this idea of say maybe the, the, the cattle or the livestock are replaced by machines, then maybe that you've got leftover machines that help farmers farm more efficiently. So mm-hmm. like hydroponics, for instance, or okay. greenhouses um, or irrigation systems that people maybe don't understand mm. but help them grow their crops. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, if you've got this machine that you don't know what it does, you don't know how it works, but... It keeps you alive because food is a basic resource. Yeah. Well, for me, what happens if that goes wrong? That's an instant adventure hook. It is. Um, what are the people? What do people think about this? You know, do you have a? Do you end up with the ruling classes not being aristocrats or or similar, but being the mechanics who know how to fix this machine that keeps the village alive? Mm-hmm. And you can end up with some very strange miniature societies, even if it's just on sort of the. Uh, the micro level where things are very different to the everyday that will be memorable to players to sort of, do you remember that weird town we got where everyone worshipped the guy who got a spanner Mm -hmm. Um, for instance. So you can kind of take this idea. Okay. Yeah, cool. So there's no, there's no horses. They've got machines. Okay. Well, what's the knock on effect of that? Where could that take you? And you can end up in some very interesting uh, places. Yeah. I was just, just thinking actually there was, there was one, um, village that um that we came up with where essentially there was this this rainbow over the village uh, mm. all the time and all the time Ooh. all the time and this this rainbow itself it obviously it wasn't rainbow in the sort of a natural sense sort of faded off in the distance but something very physical and very present um okay. and as, as the sunlight shone through it it cast like a rainbow light on the ground and anything in the in the kind of um anything that this light touched would grow really effectively. So essentially the, um, all of the, there was the prime, prime farming area was in the cast of this, um, this rainbow. Yeah. And um, what it essentially turned out was that there was uh, many, many millennia ago, there was a dome over this area, which protected and uh, almost like a greenhouse for some okay. ancient civilization, but obviously the the players and the, even the, and the villagers in the town don't know this. They just yeah. see this weird thing happening. But um, eventually, you know, the players manage to find their way into the inner workings of this large facility underneath the village, and found the original controls that would actually activate the dome. Because what oh, they're cool. seeing is the closed dome, which is like an arch over the village. And the okay. actual idea is that the, the <laughs> dome can descend. And uh, they managed to, at one point, descend the dome back to its original configuration and then 
couldn't figure out how the villagers would then get out of the village again. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really cool. I like the fact that you that it started with because Numenera is predicated that the, the key concept of the world is. Um, you know, it's in the far, far future uh, with these relics of technology. And then you kind of built something from there that kind of uses that, but starts off with sort of a hook and something unusual mm. and then reveals how it ties in. Yeah. Um, it can be quite good to, you know, try to sum up your world in a few sentences. Um, it's something that that I've used when plotting novels, for instance, yeah. is what they call the snowflake method. You write... What, what is your story going to be about? You write it in a sentence, then you write it in a paragraph, and then you write it in three paragraphs, and you expand each time. And you can do that with a world. So you can start with, you know, it's in the far, far future where um, people are left with these these relics. Um, and then you add on to that. So it's kind of medieval, but with great sources of technology. So those people with access to this technology are seen as better or different uh, or more powerful. And you can kind of build from there, can't you? Mm, absolutely. And I think that's kind of the way that we approached, um, and as it's encouraged to in the game, but we approached the sprawl. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I'm just thinking um, from myself for, um, for my approach, um, because your approach... Your, your approach is very concrete. You, you seem to draw the map. You think of a thing mm-hmm. that does some stuff. So there's this, this dome, but it's closed and it looks like a rainbow. Um, whereas my, my brain is more sort of airy-fairy than that and kind of thinks in, <laughs> in vague concepts. Um, are you familiar with Fight Club, Jamie? I am. Uh, do, you, do you remember the, uh, the quote from Fight Club? One of my favourite quotes from Fight Club. I'm afraid I can't um, speak about it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, on a long enough timeline the survival rate for everyone drops to zero mm-hmm. so the idea that everything falls apart whatever we're doing now is unusual um and the idea sort of of, of entropy uh that comes yeah, it's sort of a vaguely mathematical concept um so i had within um with one within one of my um within one of my uh, game worlds, a, a group um, who are known as the Disciples of the Void. Mm-hmm. Um, and they essentially, uh, they were nihilistic mathematicians. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they believed that the world, they believed in sort of the Big Bang. Um, so there was nothing, then it exploded, and one day it all gets sucked back in again. Mm-hmm. So because time and space are infinite, everything that was happening now was an aberration. Everything that was happening now shouldn't be happening because the natural state of things was for there to be this void, this nothing. Mm -hmm. So their whole uh, their whole reason for being was to um, accelerate the process of returning to the sweet nothingness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So they were they were kind of antagonists. Um, they were they were very weird um, but they would they would crop up uh, basically encouraging things to fall apart and encouraging things to to break um, Mm. messing around behind the scenes and trying to destroy um, and to corrupt civilizations Um, so I had these uh, these kind of slightly um, slightly mathematical slightly sociopathic um, this group running around in the uh, in the background trying to uh, trying to destroy uh, the world uh, in order to return it to its natural state, which mm-hmm. must be ideal because it is the the prime state. So they they didn't believe they were doing anything wrong. 
they thought that what they were doing was actually to everyone's benefit. Um, and they had some of the kind of the antinatalist ideas thrown in where if you don't exist, then you never suffer. If you exist, you must suffer. All, human, all, all beings suffer at some point in their lives. Mm. Therefore, the best way to reduce suffering is to not have any people. <laughs> Interesting. So they believed they were doing a social good. Yeah. Um, in the long run. So they were taking a very big picture approach. Um, but I found them really, really quite fun uh, because it enabled me to play some very strange NPCs with some very strange eccentric quirks and some very odd ways of looking at the world mm. that meant that they made sense once you got them. But if you were to sort of meet the characters or to come across what they were doing, they didn't make much sense and they were intriguing to the players. Hopefully that was the plan. Okay, that sounds really interesting. A little bit of a little bit of amateur philosophy uh, thrown in. Um, <laughs> yeah. I guess the player's think, thinking as well about a different worldview. Yes, yeah. As, as I said, that's one of the things I quite like in a in a game is I quite often if I oh, will pick a play a player character to play if I'm playing in a role play game that is completely different to my own beliefs. Mm. Um, that has completely different view on the world, um, just to see what it'd be like to think in that way. I actually think about something I've used in the past. Um, there was a, I mean, obviously we've used like um, name generators or come up with different ways of generating NPCs. Um, yeah. And, you know, some people like just thinking off the top of the head as many things as possible. But I've used a couple of interesting generators in the past. Um, and one of, the, one of them actually gives you, it's kind of like a... Um, obviously called like a, a Briggs-Myers test result okay. for um, a character in a world. Um, you know, it's actually quite detailed. And what I tend to do is then just pick out the, the best, you know, the, the key points for the character because they actually go quite into depth. Um, there's a website. Cool. I mean, you can check it out now if you like. It's um, called uh, namegeneratorfun.com. <laughs> Sounds fun. Uh, yeah, it's not the best named website in the world, but if you go on there and then click on the first character name generator link, yeah, yeah. So I tend I tended not not to use this for for the name generation itself because um, I was setting most of my my games in fantasy worlds and all of the names they generate are based on um, are based on cultures from our world. Um, but if you just click get character name, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've done a, a Chinese mail, um, and it's come up saying um, his name is Yin, Ying Tan. Mm -hmm. Then it has all this extra stuff. Um, his personality is the detective. He's an introvert, sensing, thinking, and judging. So he's serious, quiet, with loner tendencies, enjoys solitude, and tends to sit back and observe. Private and rarely talks about their feelings, etc., etc. Yeah. And, and I love okay, at the end as well, cool. it always gives a psychological disorder. Yes, um, uh, in this case, Ying Tan is depressive. Yeah. So, I mean, picking out a few of those points for each character and being able to just glance at them as, you know, um, I, I've, what I've got in my, in my kind of uh, roleplay logbook is just a big kind of collection of these unused. And if the characters mm. come across a new NPC, uh, I tend to just flick to that page and have a quick look at, you know, a potential character and can very quickly come up with like just a bit of a personality for that character rather than just yeah. always falling back on the same type of personality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that, that brings me to, to something slightly different. The idea of having 
pre-generated lists of names, uh, whether it be for places, whether it be for people, um, that you can kind of throw in. There's nothing more scary to me as a, as a, as a DM, as running a game, when the characters get into a conversation with, with just someone that they've met in the street or in, the, in a bar, and they go, what's your name? And you go... I don't fucking know. <laughs> Just this person didn't exist 30 seconds ago. Yeah. Um, I think it's great when they ask because it shows that there's something about that character that they found interesting. Mm. I've done a good bit of world building in some way because I've created something in the world, in this case, a character that they want to know more about. Mm. Uh, but it can really throw that immersion off if you don't have uh, a name ready to go. And you have to go, oh, give me five seconds. Ah, I know. And, and sometimes those those characters, you know, just completely random off the top of your head type of characters, or if you do happen to have a list of names down, can end up becoming a character that the uh, actual players remember fondly or even want to see again. Yes. So it's yeah. worth putting in the effort. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a character in uh, Cyberpunk, the original Cyberpunk role-playing game, hmm. Um that we were playing um, who the characters, they wanted a fixer. They wanted some information. Um, and I'd just been badgered uh, by my other half. Cause I'd never, I didn't watch the Goonies till I was in my twenties, mm-hmm. um, which is fine if you were born in the sixties, but at other points, <laughs> apparently it's quite weird. Um, so um, I named the character, the mouth. Okay. Um, off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first name that came into it came into my mind uh, because I'd recently watched that. And they was like, cool, yeah, you could meet this guy. Yeah, you could go to this bar and talk to uh, the mouth. He knows everything. You know, he'll talk to anyone. Uh, you know, sort of slightly, slightly improving, making it up as I went along. Mm-hmm. And then as they, as when they got to the character, it's like, right, why do they call him the mouth? Why do they call him the mouth? Right, why, 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 why? <laughs> and just kind of go, right, the guy doesn't shut up. Mm-hmm. So I determined just to fill every single blank moment, every every bit of silence, every bit of out of character discussion. He would talk, yeah, and he would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, uh, and just keep going on and on and on and on and on, um, much like I'm doing now, um, and just wouldn't shut up mm-hmm. because that's why they call him the mouth, yeah, because he's just got a mouth on him, yeah, um, and. Uh, I decided that um, there's a, a guy I knew at school who was a bit like that um, in a nice way. I liked him uh, and he was um, he was Italian. So I gave the guy an Italian name as well. So his name was Vincenzo the Mouth Braggiano. Um, and <laughs> um, I decided to make him kind of, you know, that slightly stereotypical, but I was making this up on the spot um, where a lot of his stories would come back to his uh, his grandmother's cooking. Mm. Um, and her looking after him and um, the trouble he got into when he was a kid and her kind of what she used to tell him to to get by. So he'd just spew all this nonsense um, about his grandma uh, (laughs) and the life lessons that she taught him if they didn't talk, you know, focus him on the uh, task. And it's a character that one of my friends still quotes some of the things he says to this day over 10 years later. Mm -hmm. Completely made up on the spot. um, But became a core part of that world and every adventure whenever they wanted some information they were like let's go and talk to the mouth oh that's very cool yeah uh and that character now exists in the sprawl uh because that player brought them in as a contact in the sprawl oh. so uh, an older wiser version of him i uh, i hasten to add 
Um, so yeah, so it was just a little bit of, you know, world building can be these big, how does society work? What do these people believe? Where are the mountains and the sea? Or it can just be these little things like dropping in characters, dropping in locations, dropping in um, little ideas or little organisations that work on a small level that bring the place to life. Mm-hmm. And that is all that remains of the lost transmission. Perhaps when you build a world, you will build a world where technology does not fail those who wish to share their ideas.